All right, so hey, we are at the end, almost at the tail end of Matthew chapter 9. Uh, some of you are probably like, finally. Uh, so next week, we'll actually finish up Matthew chapter 9. Uh, but this morning, uh, we're in the last, at least for a couple chapters, uh, the last story of Jesus healing someone. Uh, so it's every healing narrative that takes place in Matthew 9. He's kind of healing something of somebody, somebody of something different. And so this morning, uh, my goal is for you all to identify yourselves and put yourselves in one of three categories. Uh, either you're going to be a person who has faith, you're going to be per- a person who is amazed, or you're going to be a person that I would categorize as ignorant. There you go. So some of you are like, what does that mean? So you'll see. We've got a lot of work to do. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, We're going to be in verses 32 through 34. Uh, While you do that, I'm going to open us in a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, I thank you for who you are. Uh, Lord, I thank you and acknowledge that your presence is in this place, and your presence is the only thing that can change hearts. Uh, Your presence is the only thing that can change minds. Uh, So, Lord, as we open up your word this morning, uh, I pray that you give us clarity on what it says. Uh, God, that you would push us uh, to be followers of you. And so, God, we give uh, this time to you as we open your word uh, ask that you guide me in the things that I say. Uh, it's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 32. Uh, Matthew tells us, As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Uh, so Matthew keeps up with the narrative, okay? So he's keeping up with this narrative. It's like every section, Jesus is going from place to place. Uh, Jesus goes from Jairus' house. He leaves there. He then hits the road. Last week we see he's encountered by two blind men on the road. Uh, he pulls the blind men into the house. He heals them of their blindness. Uh, he says, don't tell anyone I healed you of your blindness. They tell everyone they know that he healed them of his blindness. Uh, so Jesus' name is kind of hot in the streets. Uh, now we see him leave that scene and he encounters yet another individual. We see in this verse that a demon-oppressed man was brought to him. Uh, so if you've been with us for a couple of months, you'll remember that this isn't Jesus' first interaction with a demon. Uh, in fact, as a summary statement in Matthew chapter 4, uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus in his ministry went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and Jesus healed them. Uh, So that's in the end of Matthew 4. So just a little bit of like structure of the book of Matthew, especially chapters 5 through 9. Uh, You see Jesus in chapters 5 through 7, you see his teaching authority, right? Uh, Him teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And then in chapters uh, 8 and 9, we see Jesus heal. And not to belabor the point, Jesus heals all kinds of people, as we've seen. All kinds of diseases, all kinds of illnesses are mentioned. But this is his second time encountering someone who's demon-possessed. I remember in Matthew 8, after Jesus calms the storm in the Sea of Galilee, uh, he encounters two men who were demon-possessed on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Those two men that were demon-possessed, what did the demon do? It made them extremely violent. Here in Matthew 9, this man is brought to Jesus. He's not violent at all. He's mute, uh, meaning he can't talk. In fact, that word in the Greek, uh, mute, means that he was probably deaf too. So he couldn't hear and he couldn't talk. 
Uh, So notice right away just the qualities of demon possession. A demon could possess people in different ways. Uh, Some are violent, some are mute, so on and so forth. When you're possessed with a demon, who knows what will happen. But I want you to notice that this is a little different. Uh, Jesus doesn't just like walk up on this man. Uh, This man is brought to Jesus. We don't know who brought him. We don't know how many people brought him. Uh, We just know that this demon-oppressed man does not come to Jesus on his own. So what does Jesus do? Does he touch him? Does he speak to him? Does he question him about his lack of faith? Well, he couldn't really do any of that because the guy can't hear, the guy can't talk. Uh, So we don't really know. Matthew doesn't tell us how Jesus cast the demon out. Uh, My guess is Jesus, by the authority of his words, tells the demon where to where to go. So there's no need for detail, I guess, for Matthew. He tells us in verse 33, just kind of jumps to the point. He says, when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled saying, never was anything like this seen in all of Israel. Uh, So the demon no longer has possession over the man. The demon's been cast out. The issue the possession caused, which was an inability to speak, that's now been lifted. Now this man who's been mute, we don't know how long he's been mute, he's now speaking. And much to the crowd's amazement, they've never seen anything like this. And this always makes me wonder, like, where have these people been, right? Uh, Jesus has been around town healing everyone. Uh, People who were unknown, like the woman with blood. People who were really, really well known. Uh, The centurion's servant, the synagogue ruler's daughter. He's healing everyone. So when Matthew says this, it makes it seem like Jesus' miracles are kind of catching people off guard. But remember, the last time Jesus healed a demon, it was on a different part of the Sea of Galilee. He was on the other side of the lake. He was in what was called Gentile territory. Now he's back in Capernaum. He's back amongst his people, the Jews. So word might not have traveled from the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee to the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Word probably didn't travel from the Gentiles to the Jews that Jesus cast out demons and sent them into a herd of pigs. The Jews and the Gentiles weren't buddies, so they might not have known Jesus had that. Uh, Remember, if casting out demons was just common practice in that day, there wouldn't have been anybody who was demon-possessed. So right there, you see Jesus, the people's amazement at what Jesus did. That kind of confirms Jesus' authority, doesn't it? If Jesus is doing something that nobody else can do, that must mean he's different from everybody else. So you have to do something with that. You have to do something with that this morning. You have to do something with that. If you're in the crowd here in verse 33, you have to figure out if this guy is able to do things that other people aren't, what is it about him? These people here, Scripture tells us that they marveled. Uh, That word literally means like their jaws dropped. Uh, But there's an opposite reaction from our buddies, the Pharisees. Verse 34, but the Pharisees said, well, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So that's the opposite of marveling. That's the opposite of dropping your jaw in amazement. Uh, Right here what the Pharisees are doing in verse 34 is they're attributing a good work, a godly work to evil. In this verse you see two character qualities that shine in the life of a Pharisee. One is jealousy, the other is blasphemy. Uh, If you read through chapter 9, from the minute Jesus heals the paralytic, The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the disciples of John the Baptist, they follow Jesus everywhere he goes the minute he starts doing crazy miracles. In every single story Matthew has led us in so far in this chapter, Jesus has done an incredible amount of good, right? 
Like you don't even have to submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. If you read chapter 9, you see Jesus as a good person. Uh, You could have just been a bystander. You see him take a man who's paralyzed and tell him, get up off your mat and walk. A man that could not move could now walk. You see him take a 12-year-old little girl who's dead and raise her from the dead and give her life. You see him take a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years, marginalized, pushed out by society, and restore her and call her daughter. Last week, Jesus takes two blind men and just immediately heals them of their eyesight. There's nothing bad about any of that. And it's not like Jesus had some split personality where one day he was healing, the next day he's on some nasty streak, right? I remember a few years ago, I watched a documentary on this guy, Pablo Escobar. If you don't know who Pablo Escobar is, he was a Colombian drug kingpin. He was like the leader leader of the cartel, not someone that you strive to be like, not somebody that we like push our kids, hey, you should be like Pablo Escobar. Uh, Pablo Escobar did horrible, horrible things. He kidnapped people, he murdered people, got thousands addicted to drugs like cocaine, Uh, just a horrible individual, a horrible man. But yet when Pablo Escobar died, there were 25,000 people at his funeral. Because some Colombian people, they looked at him, even though he did bad things, they kind of looked at him a little bit like a Robin Hood type figure. With all the money he brought in from the drug trade, what he did with the poor, building them houses, giving them shelter, giving them clothes, giving them food, was far more than anybody else in Colombia would do for the people. He was like a one-man department of economic security. So he dies, and there's 25,000 people worshiping this drug lord at his funeral. So with a guy like Pablo Escobar, if he took care of you, you like him, and then you just kind of overlook all the bad. That's not Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. Uh, Last week I mentioned Hebrews 1, 3. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. So every quality that you could find in God is found in Jesus. He's the exact imprint of God's nature, meaning that in Jesus there is no darkness. John 1 tells us that in him, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men, that the light, Jesus Christ, shines in the darkness, and there's nothing the darkness can do to overcome it. That's who Jesus is. By his actions, by his healings, by his steps of authority, doing nothing nothing other than healing people, raising people from the dead, restoring people to society. Yet we see in verse 34 that the religious leaders have a problem with this, largely because the religious leaders were far too arrogant to submit to anyone else's authority, let alone Jesus Christ. So what we see is the Pharisees see healings happen and then they operate out of jealousy. Jesus casts out a demon. That's not legit power. That's not evil power. That's a power that only God has. And then that's where blasphemy comes in. When they say he casts out demons by the prince of demons, they're saying that the source of power that Jesus casts that demon out comes directly from the prince of demons, which we know is Satan. Blasphemy, by definition, is to take something that is accomplished by God, a good work accomplished by God, and you credit it to the work of the devil. That is blasphemy. That's what's going on here. You have the most pure, the most holy man that's ever walked the earth, the bright of the brightest, right? Literally, a man that's incapable of having a bad intention is here in verse 34 being accused of evil. Why? Because he cast out a demon? I mean, we read that today and we're like, how in the world does that charge even make sense? The logic doesn't add up. 
So yet again, we see Jesus do something, and then it sparks reaction. It seems like every healing in chapter 9, it sparks a bigger reaction every time he does something. And I think for this morning, uh, that's where our application kind of sets in. Uh, We see just from these three verses, three reactions to Jesus. Uh, The number one reaction is a reaction of faith. Uh, The number two is a reaction of amazement. And the number three reaction is the reaction of ignorance. Uh, So I will go through those one at a time. Let's start with number one. Uh, The first group we see in verse 32 is the group that had faith. The reaction of faith. Verse 32, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Uh, I said this earlier, but the demon-oppressed man was brought to Jesus by someone. Uh, It does us no good to speculate who brought him to Jesus. Uh, The lesson here is that someone or a group of people were filled with enough faith to bring this man before Jesus, just in Jesus' presence. Uh, So we've talked over and over again in chapter 9 about faith. We talked about faith the last few weeks, but I want everyone in this room to do something. Uh, Think of one individual that you know, uh, the individual that you know that is the furthest away from Christ that you could possibly imagine. Uh, You have to know them personally. This can't be like your least favorite politician, okay? Uh, Furthest away from Christ that you could possibly imagine. Uh, Think of someone. They're far from Christ. Uh, This morning, this guy's demon-possessed, right? It's far from Christ. So your friend probably isn't demon-possessed. They can most likely talk. Uh, So you probably have thought of someone that you can't stand or whatever. Uh, Keep that person in your mind. All right, people in the front row are like yelling the names out. Um, All right, if I told you that one day soon that individual would give their life to Christ, would you believe me? If your answer is like, no way, Let me tell you why that's problematic when it comes to your view of God. Uh, Isaiah 59.1 is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. I hear a verse like that, and it just makes me think of the bigness of God. A lot of us, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we go wrong is we tie the gospel into the smallness of our faith rather than into the bigness of who God is. In reality, what that verse in Isaiah tells us is that God's not up there with like these T-Rex arms, right? He's like, oh no, that guy's too far from me. I can't quite reach him. That guy's too deeply lost. I can't pull him in. He can't get to the person who's just too jacked up, right? That's simply not true. There's no shadow of darkness that God's glory cannot touch. There's no amount of brokenness in an individual that God cannot restore, and there's no depth of sin that Christ cannot redeem. The reality is, if you sit there today and you lack faith in the saving power of Jesus Christ, you have a high view of yourself and you have a low view of God. To get this straight this morning, none of us in here save anyone. It's God that does the saving. What's our role as Christians? It's us to get them in front of him. So you might think, well, Pastor Michael, you've been on this evangelism kick recently. Maybe I have. Maybe because evangelism is something that we are commanded by Jesus to do, yet a lot of us in this room shriek back at that responsibility. I don't think it's laziness. I think a lot of us in here have a limited view on God. If the gospel is as powerful as we say it is, if the word of God is as powerful as we say it is, why don't we tell more people about it? Uh, the first group this morning brought the demon-possessed man to Jesus. Here, Jesus, this guy's mute, he's deaf, he's got a demon, we don't know what to do with him. Here, Jesus, this guy's a mess. We've heard you can do some things. 
When your faith is attached to the greatness of God, there is no limit to the way God will work in and through you. So who is that person in your life that's broken? And then what are you doing to bring them in front of Jesus? So that's group number one, the group who had faith. Group number two is the group that was amazed. Verse 33, and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in all of Israel. When's the last time something happened in your life where the only thing you could think was, man, how great and how amazing is God? Uh, I want to tie this back to evangelism. At the end of the day, the guy we see in these three verses was restored to health. Uh, Christ touched him and he healed him. Christ changed this man's life. That's what evangelism is. Evangelism is trying to push the spiritually unhealthy and make them healthy. Uh, so a couple of years ago, before this church started, uh, my family made friends with a guy from our gym. Uh, I wouldn't categorize him as a guy from like category number one, uh, but I would tell you this guy was very, very far from Christ to say the least. Uh, a friend of ours is just rampant sin in many areas of his life, uh, completely blind to the fact that he stood in opposition but to God. Uh, frankly, he didn't care. Uh, he gloated about the way that he would sin. Uh, anyhow, the Lord just made a path uh, for me and my wife to become friends with him. Uh, we just invited him over for dinner a lot. Uh, considering I'm a pastor, uh, most of the time, once someone figures out what I do for a living, it takes like two to three conversations masks for them to start bringing up church stuff. Uh, he started to become very curious of why did we do things in our home uh, the way that we did. So let you in on what we used to do with our kids. We would put him to bed. He would be downstairs, and we would hold hands and sing Kumbaya and then pray. That's how we'd put our kids to bed. You might think that's the weirdest thing in the world. Uh, he was a kid that got put to bed, told you need to go to bed, and he was like, you pray with your kids. Why do you do that? He's very curious of like, why did we do all the practices we did? Not like we're on some high and mighty shelf, uh, but our house is a Christian home. Things look different when he come in it. Uh, I remember one night, uh, kids were in bed. He just straight up asked me and Kristen, uh, what happens to people? Uh, do people really go to hell when they die? Uh, I'm not one to shy away from the truth. So I was like, yeah, if you're not a Christian, you spend eternity in hell. Uh, that led to, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? So I just loosely defined it for him. Is someone that believes that Christ died on the cross for their sins, believes that Jesus Christ rose on the third day, believes that their sin has been paid for by Jesus, they don't need to work to be in some sort of great relationship with him, someone who strives to be like Jesus in every area of their life, they're obedient to what he asks. That's not an exhaustive list, so some of you theological geniuses, you don't need to email me. I'm just trying to give him like a framework of like, what is a Christian? What makes me and Kristen different? Uh, then he then proceeded to throw out names of people in the gym. Well, do you think so-and-so is going to hell? I'm like, dude, I have no idea. Okay, you're losing me there. What that did is it turned into many nights at our house for dinner. Uh, I'm giving this dude books, like evangelism books, apologetic books. Every book I can get him to read, I'm like, dude, read this. Uh, this guy was in my small group, in my living room, uh, reading one of the best books ever written, Pursuit of Holiness, uh, with a bunch of Christians when he was not one. Uh, I'll never forget the day I met him outside of Ebb and Flow Coffee in Verado. Uh, some circumstances in his life just weren't good. Uh, he's trying to figure out, like, if God's up there, like, what direction is he trying to send me in? Uh, he admitted to me that everything he sought in life was leaving him in emptiness. He couldn't seem to fill his own heart. Uh, finally, I'm sitting there, and after repeating the gospel for what felt like the millionth time, it finally just clicked. 
It's God who saves, it's not us. It finally just clicked in his heart. Right on the corner of Main Street and Verado Way outside of that super expensive yogurt place, I prayed with him to accept Christ. I'll tell you this much. I did not expect that to happen that day. I got back in my truck after we were done meeting and my jaw dropped. I sat in my truck and I was amazed. I remember specifically saying to God, God, I cannot believe you just made that happen. God, I cannot believe that you just saved him. It's in moments like that where you understand that God is faithful to his people when you continuously plead for him to work. It's moments like that where you understand that God is so much bigger than your puny little mind can think. And when you grasp your mind around the bigness of God, that should bring amazement of what he can do. So for some of us in this room that walked in here this morning and were a little weary, We've been praying and praying and praying for the person in category number one. We've been praying, praying, and praying for the person that we want to see saved. I said this story to not make much of me. I said this story to make much of God. And maybe it calls to mind a time in your life when God was unbelievably faithful. The question I asked you at the very beginning was, can you name a time in your life where you can sit back and say, man, I am amazed by what God has done? A lot of us in this room grow weary because we're called in scripture to build monuments in our lives of amazing times where God has worked, where we can look back at those things. Those moments where God has worked in your life, whether God has saved you in that moment, whether God has done a miracle in your life, whether God has restored you to health, whether God has restored your marriage, those are monuments that you're able to look back at and see in the path of life, God gives us reminders through his glory that he is ever every bit through our entire life who he says he is. It's those monuments that are there that you can look back on in the midst of weariness, in the midst of dry seasons. We look back at our Christian life and say, man, God was faithful. And it's in the midst of dry seasons that we are to pray for the wonder of God to show up in our lives. Uh, last group is group number three, the group of ignorance. Uh, verse 34, it says, but the Pharisees said, well, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Uh, an ignorant person, or should I say, a spiritually ignorant person is one that sees and hears about God, yet does not rightfully believe or credit the work to him. I'm going to say that one more time. A spiritually ignorant person is someone who sees or hears about God or who he is, yet does not rightfully believe or credit the work to him. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 Paul does an awesome job in 1 Corinthians to contrast the wisdom of God with the wisdom of the world. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but is the power of God to those of us who are being saved. Paul goes on to say that this foolishness of God, this cross, this thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified is actually wiser than any amount of human wisdom. God's weakness is stronger than any amount of human strength. The problem with the Pharisees in verse 34 and all throughout the Gospels is that they were so wise in their own eyes that their wisdom in their own eyes prohibited them from seeing Christ. They were ignorant. People today who put all their eggs in the worldly basket of wisdom, you sit here today and you seek and you seek and you seek the things of the world to try to fill you with something. Scripture is very, very clear that all those things that you chase after in this life are utterly insignificant and nothing that you chase has any sort of lasting meaning. To become a follower of Christ, it's actually a backwards thing. 
You become weak so that you can gain Christ's strength. You become insignificant so the significance of Jesus Christ's life fills you with significance. You, go, you let go of things because you understand that the things that you're letting go of are filled with the joy of Christ. But it's Romans 1. Those of you that are familiar with Romans 1, people are blind to that. The Pharisees are blind to that. Spiritually ignorant people are blind to that. You're blind to the fact that the cross of Christ is what saves you from your sin. So what do you do? Instead of looking at that, instead of fixing your eyes on the cross, you just jump two feet into the world and you're on a path to eternal condemnation. Uh, So just to close, I want to say two things about this. Uh, I want to talk first and foremost to the Christians in the room. Um, You cannot view non-Christians, the spiritually ignorant, they are not your enemies, Uh, You have to view them as people who have been given over to their sin and need the light of Christ shared with them. Your Democrat neighbor next year is not your enemy. Your liberal coworker is not to be hated. Your lost, out-of-control family member is not to be shoved aside. Those are people who are spiritually blind, who need the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and guess what? You might be the conduit that is called to bring that light into their life. Jesus had an us-against-them attitude with the religious leaders, not with the lost. With the lost, what did Christ had? He had open arms. He's eating meals with them. We're called to do the exact same. Uh, lastly, second, second person I want to talk to in this room are those of you in this room that have never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Uh, I'm going to pray for you in a minute that your ignorance would be met with the loving reach of Jesus Christ. Uh, The path that you're on right now, it's not my job to get up here and lie to you. The path that you are walking on right now is leading you down a path of destruction. It may not feel destructive right now. That might not see what your future is, but that's what it is. This morning, it's only Jesus Christ who can save you. It's only Jesus Christ who can fill you. It's only Jesus Christ who can remove your blindness. I'm just simply going to ask you this morning, would you trust him to do that thing? Uh, I'm going to close this in prayer. Uh, But before I do that, I want to read a couple verses to you. These are the promises of God. For those of you in this room that may feel like you're spiritually blind and you feel the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart. Uh, Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has come to seek and to save the lost. Uh, John 3.36 says, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. 1 John 1.7 says that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses you from all of your sin. John 6.37 says, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Romans 10.13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're in this room and you've never called on the name of the Lord, there's a problem. You have a problem of, I'll I'll do that next time. I'll do that next time. I'll do that next time. There's nothing that you could be more urgent in your life than that, to call upon the name of the Lord. And simply by doing that, he saves you from your sins. You don't have to sit in your seat and pray some varsity level prayer. You don't have to admit everything you've ever done wrong to anybody at the prayer sign. You don't have to do any of that. It's call on the name of the Lord. God, I walk in here this morning and I feel spiritually blind. Would you just open my eyes to your glory? I promise you he will do that. I would everybody in here just bow their heads with me as I close this in prayer. Um, Lord, I thank you for your goodness. Uh, Lord, I thank you that uh, you're the one that takes all the weight of saving people and we don't have to have that pressure. Uh, But God, you call us to be obedient to you. 
Uh, Lord, you call us to bring people in front of you that need your help. Uh, God, I pray that you stir in this church a heart of evangelism, uh, a heart to see the lost as broken, as spiritually blind, and a heart for ourselves to be the people who could bring brightness of the gospel to them. Uh, Father, I just pray that you work in this church. Uh, Lord, the sin that so easily entangles us, God, just root that out of our lives. Uh, Father, I pray for the person in this room that doesn't know you. Uh, God, I don't mean to call anybody ignorant, but God, the spiritual ignorance that may take place in this place through a heart or a mind that could have walked in here this morning. God, I pray that you save souls this morning. Uh, Lord, you're the only one that can do that. Um, God, I pray that any distraction that's in this room could just go away. Uh, Father, that you would work on the hearts and minds of the men and women in here who do not know you. Uh, God, that they could see clearly how great you are, how full of grace you are, how full of forgiveness of every sin that's ever been committed you are. God, that we can see the sweetness of who you are. Uh, So God, I just pray that you work in this room. Uh, Lord, that you would get those of us who are Christians to repent of the things that are taking us further away from you. Uh, God, and you would just work in every life where they need the ministry of your spirit. It's in your precious name I pray.